The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Amen. Everybody doing well? Awake? Alert? So this will be a, a message, but I may feel a little bit more like a, a seminar because there's some things I want to walk through with you with some ideas and maybe some tools that you can take back to your ministries uh, so that may be beneficial to you. Uh, but that being the case, feel free. You're not going to offend me or those around you. If you need to go back and get some more coffee, you can bring me some too. Uh, I won't, won't hesitate to deny that. But I do want to introduce uh, my family. They, they had to, to hit the, the bed early last night, but they were back there in the corner. It's my wife, Bethany, and my kids, Kate and Chloe and Isaac. So we're excited to have them here with us today. And uh, so they're going to get to hang out this afternoon, and uh, they are really an illustration of a lot of what I would like to share with you about this morning, which is how is it that we connect the church and the home? Uh, they just asked me a few minutes ago about what, what title would I give to this. I said, well, I typically would call this connecting church and home. Uh, but when I have an opportunity to be a little more fun with it, I like to call this the, the glory of God at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. And, uh, and it's more than about the chicken you're consuming. It's about the conversations you could have on the road with your kids. And so uh, what I want to do is just spell out for you a little bit of an argument that I would like to make of a way that we need to be pursuing student ministry in the years to come. I I guess last night I began this uh, whole thing with an illustration about kids and ball games. So I I was thinking about it a few minutes ago and I thought let's just continue with that a little bit. So let's go back to those kids on the ball field, right? When you're teaching them how to play the game, Whatever game it is, it doesn't matter whether it's peewee, baseball, football, basketball, soccer, whatever. You have to do two basic things for those kids to teach them if they're going to ever learn that game, win a game, or anything of that nature. Number one, they've got to have a desire to play the game, right? Like you can teach them mechanics and skills and all that stuff all day long, but have you seen the kid in little league ball that knows how to hit and throw but has no desire to with the glove on top of the head and he's out there making sand castles and adding to his bug collection and everything, but he can tell you all sorts of baseball facts and information and how to have a good swing and how to catch the ball and throw the ball. So mechanics are not enough, but mechanics are important. That's the second part. You have to teach them the skills. You have to teach them the plays. You have a football team. Let's make it a little bit older. Uh, Maryville t- at my, t- my hometown takes football very, very seriously. And so they go out each year and, and compete at a high level. And those high school boys, college boys, even professional players must have also, in addition to that passion, they have to know the right plays to run. You can be passionate. You can have one of those like, remember the Titan speeches and come out there and sing and dance and have people, you can have the stands packed and everything. But if you've never thrown or caught a football or run a play, I don't care how passionate you are, you're going to get trampled, right? So you have to have both. You have to have a purpose and you have to have a plan. I wanna challenge in short, the way that we've done student ministry in large part for the last 60 years. Because I'm concerned that having done this now for almost 20, and the more I've gotten into scripture and understand what I believe the Lord calls us to do in terms of discipleship, I believe that we have a lot of passionate people without the right plan. And so what I wanna do is, is invite you to consider your plan together. Think about what that plan looks like. Now, a brief history lesson as to why I believe that we've gotten off track. The way that we do youth ministry, in fact, youth ministry in of itself did not exist until the last 60, 70 years, right? There was no category. There were pastors in the churches, but there were not really designated youth pastors, youth directors, uh, even youth classes or 
fairly new in church history. Uh, they go back a little bit further. But it, I could take a whole session and tell you about how we got to where we are today in the formation of how we reach and equip teenagers and youth in our country. But I'm going to sum it up in just a couple minutes, but I'll need you to listen very carefully because it's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant. So number one, one of the biggest events for that was the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, you have everyone working primarily where? In the home, right? And so they would work, they would do textile manufacturing from sewing clothes to planting uh, cornfields to just anything and everything. The primary institution for both work and play was the home. After the Industrial Revolution, you have dads, later moms, and believe it or not, kids. Um, one point in our nation, there were work hour limitations, uh, 30, 40 hour limits on kids under age 13 in textile manufacturing plants. And so you saw this great split in the economic workforce. And so, of course, what's happening in the culture affects what's happening in the church. Uh, you have traveling preachers that would go do horseback rides all uh, around the country and they would do these tent revivals and crusades and things like that. But the home drastically shifted. Then you get into World War I and specifically World War II. Here's what's taking place. Something major happens in our nation. You have from the Great Depression, 20s and 30s, right? 20s and 30s. And then you go one generation forward <clears throat> into that second world war. You have moms and dads who grew up with nothing, right? Grew up with very, very little. Many of you have <clears throat> probably heard the stories in your families from grandparents and things like that about how they had to make ends meet during that time. You fast forward after the second world war, there is an economic boom. And for the first time in our nation's history ever, you have a, an age range, 12 to 18, who had time to spend to do what they wanted and money, economic ability. So now they are an economic force in our culture. Like, well, what does this have to do with connecting church and home? Stay with me just one more second. What takes place then is that you start having youth gatherings over any and all interest in our country for the first time ever. At the same time, what's going on when the, the page turns in our nation into the late 50s? What's going on in the 60s? Yeah, like Woodstock. Someone said like, so you've got what's happening in the home. Moms and dads are leaving the nest. They are abandoning the next generation. That's why you have books like Lord of the Flies that come out where all the grownups are gone. And so the kids have to come together and form their own tribal society for survival, right? So while mom and dad are stepping away from the home, first they stepped away economically, then they stepped away spiritually and even physically. So all the youth kind of huddled together. So you had movements in the 60s and early 70s like Youth for Christ, Young Life, and things like that that stepped in to fill in the gap where mom and dad were not giving supervision and care for these kids. The church saw that need. And the church started saying, well, let's create something like that within our walls. So let's have a designated person, an expert, a leader that can go out there and kind of bring in this new thing. Teenager, by the way, didn't even exist. The term uh, did not even exist until around that time of uh, that stepping away, 50s and 60s, uh, was not even used regularly until the 60s in our culture. So before that, you have child and adult. So now we have a new demographic, a new recognized age group, right, adolescence, in which, by the way, they're now calling that adult essence because they say that it extends into the 20s and 30s. Not sure about that. <laughs> but when you think about how that has affected the church, what does that mean for us today? It means that for the last 60 plus years that we have had a way of doing church and discipling the next generation that by large leaves out mom and dad. It's a leave it to the professionals approach. Now what has happened in the previous two generations, especially the most recent generation, 
parents have re-engaged, haven't they? Oh boy, have they. That's why we have terms like helicopter parents, right? Uh, and uh, the most recent, uh, Tim Elmore, I believe I read this from him recently, they call them lawnmower parents, meaning they have descended from the helicopter and they are making straight the way for their child so they don't have any resistance, right? Now, that's not true for every home. You all can give examples of where parents have still advocated and stepped away, but now we see a dichotomy. We see some parents that have remained disengaged. We have some that have re-engaged to a great extent in every area but one, spiritually. That's how we got to where we are today. They've re-engaged, they've picked up the ball, they've, they've, they've started doing the things that they feel like they need to do again, but they have yet to re-engage spiritually. So I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter six. And again, we're going to go through a study on this passage and look at what this means for us today. <clears throat> the results of the, the methods, the results of the sin struggle in our nation and in our churches even, have led to two great crises. And again, I could take all the time in the world to spell these out for you, but I'm gonna be very brief with this and then we'll get into the meat of everything. These are things you probably have heard though. Number one, there's the, the abandonment of the local church by youth. As they graduate, research that it first came out years ago, youth conferences, oh, it's 90%, 95%. That, that was not good research. People were not actually giving due diligence in that. So if you heard that, that's, that's not factual, that's not correct. But the reality was that the good research out there says that across every denomination, the average is half. Just over half of youth are leaving the church when they turn 18 uh, in that 18 to 22 and now even 25 age range uh, are not attending a local church that were previously attending a local church. And we can have all sorts of discussion about that. Uh, I've got some theories and thoughts about that. Maybe we can talk about that in the, the question answer time later. But the second great crisis is something that came out about 12, 13 years ago and has been repeated often over the years, and that is this concept of a term given to us called moral therapeutic deism. Raise your hand if you've heard that term. Okay, great. See, my people. So when you go around, where else could you say that, honestly? How many of you guys have heard moral therapeutic deism like one out of a million in other settings? Youth pastors like, yep, got it. Uh, I've read three books on it. But here's, here's the deal. For those of you that have not uh, familiar with that. Let me sum it up in one minute. Moral therapeutic deism came out of the largest research effort in our nation on studying spiritual worldview amongst those that are 12 to 21 years old. Christian Smith, uh, Melinda Lindquist, and the National Center for uh, Youth Ministry, Youth Studies um, in North Carolina, uh, did a nationwide survey amongst thousands of teenagers where they didn't just do surveys, but they interviewed them. It was a four-year longitudinal study. They invested $4 million in it. Pretty extensive, right? So they came up with this term to describe what our teenagers and our churches believe. This is going back about 13, 14 years ago. Moral therapeutic deism. There's five tenets of that. We're not going to get into that right now. Let me sum them up to say basically that they believe that there is a God out there. He kind of steps away. That's where the deism comes in, but he engages when we need him to fix a problem. So when we pray, he'll jump in, save the day, rescue us, and then he goes back to his little corner in heaven and waits to do the next thing. That's the deist view. Uh, moral, meaning that God wants us to be good, upstanding, moral people, right? In our culture, a affirms that, that we have a moral integrity about us, that we do the right things and, and say the right things and stuff like that. And then therapeutic is mean, meaning mainly that God is there for me, that God's sole purpose, if you will, according to the average teenager, was that he could be there for me. Now, the most troubling thing they found was that the normative view about salvation was that good people go to heaven when they die. So fast forward just a few years, they say, well, why in the world are our teenagers believing this? And they did a second study. Uh, you've probably seen the books out about this, um, about this thick. And here, can I sum up a book that's about this uh, soul searching and then souls in transition a few years later. Can I sum up a book in just a couple sentences for you? 
it didn't start with the teenagers. <laughs> it started with where? Mom and dad. It was in our churches. They started surveying people slightly older. They started surveying their parents and they found that they held to the exact same views. And what was being handed down was not a genuine Christian faith at all. So just to set the stage, that's where we are in the context of our faith community. Deuteronomy 6. And we're going to walk through verses 4 through 9 just very simply in an overview. And I want to look at some commands here. This is not just found in Deuteronomy. This is found all throughout Old and New Testaments. But I believe this is probably what many in this room would recognize as a primary scripture when it comes to our call to lead our own homes and to equip the home. So we're just going to look at a few verses beginning chapter 6, verse 4. And I want to look at those first three words. Hear, O Israel. The first command is hear. It's a Hebrew word meaning shema. It's shema meaning hear, but listen, right? It's listen up. You see the difference between those two? Every parent in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. When you get your kid's face and you're like, all right, go clean your room. And they start to walk away and they go to play a game or just, I don't know, chase a squirrel. And you're saying, hey, did you hear me? You're not asking if the, the auditory receptors in their ears are functioning. You're not asking if you need to go seek medical help. You're saying, why are you not doing what I told you to do, right? So that's exactly what this word means. When he says Shema, he's saying, hear, O Israel, it is a it's a double-edged sword. It is listen and it is do. In youth ministry today, I believe across our nation, for the most part, this passage we're about to look into, I believe we've heard it, but I don't believe we've heard it, if that makes sense. In other words, we, we have many people that could quote this passage, but are we doing this? So cards on the table, I believe the scripture is calling you and I to reach and to equip the home as the primary means of discipling the next generation. This passage is calling us to reach and equip the home as the primary means of discipling the next generation. Now, quick time out. I know many of us in the room, especially if you're a veteran youth ministry or you serve in a particular context, there is a big excuse that is welling up in your mind. Let me deal with it very quickly. That excuse for many people in this room is, well, in my church, in my situation, we have X number of students and only a small percentage of them have parents that attend. So how in the world are we to come about bringing this kind of model into play uh, if parents are not even present? Let me speak to that excuse with two very simple questions. Number one, how will you reach those parents? How will you reach those parents? Often, if I could just be honest and real with you, from my experience, you can't by yourself. When I show up at the door or call or send a message or a letter to those parents, it's not very well received. Why? Because how are they seeing me? They're seeing me as a hired hand to do something for them, right? I'm not going to drag you into this. Or they see me as a threat because their kid likes, that. in some youth ministries, they like the youth pastor more than they like mom and dad, right? They see them as a threat. So how are you going to reach those parents? Parents. Other parents. We've got to create a healthier home environment and a more godly home environment so that our parents are reaching out to those parents. They're already sitting by them at all the ball games, at all those band recitals. They're already doing all the PTO and PTA and all that stuff with them. They are already engaging them beyond the walls of the church. Why is it that we take that on ourselves alone to do? We need to be investing our parents to reach those parents. So that's number one. Number two, how will you reach those kids whose parents are not coming? So family equipping ministry is a double-edged coin. It is seeing the importance of the nuclear family, but it's also seeing the importance of the church as family. So when someone says family ministry, I am not referring to the nuclear family. I'm talking about first the church family. Then I'm talking about the nuclear family, those that are Christians and that need to be discipled and how to disciple their own kids. But for those whose kids come to the church but the parents don't come to the church, 
Those kids need more than you and I. Let's say you've got a group of 25. And let's say half of them, the average is just around half of, of their parents attend from just my casual observation, half to two thirds. So that means you've got 12 to uh, upwards to 15 students that you're going to try to take on personal discipleship for. Well, Jesus did 12, right? I'm not sure that I want to bite off more than that. I think you and I are much like Legos and you've got other responsibilities too. You can't disciple all of them. You need a faith family to come alongside you. Your role as student leaders, I think I call us Spider-Man and Spider-Women, right? To be PC. So we are, we are creating a web of relationships within our church investing time rather than investing all the time just with that kid we are investing a portion of our time in creating relationships and I'll be glad to give some examples about that later if anyone would like some about how you can connect intergenerationally within your church to multiply your ministry so that it does not all rest on you which spoiler by the way what happens when you leave and it all rests on you the house of cards comes crumbling down. Build something that's going to outlast that. So, all that set the stage for what we're looking at here today. The church is critical. Hear me say that. The church is critical. The church is not like a family. <laughs> the church is a family. Our families, like my family that's here, my extended family, as it is now, is temporal, but the church family is eternal. You see examples of this all throughout Scripture. Paul is talking to Timothy in a letter named Timothy, and he says to him, where is it that I've seen your faith come from, Timothy? From Lois and Eunice, right? Your mother and your grandmother. But just two or three verses before that, how does he refer to Timothy? He says, to my true son in the faith. So you see the, the physical nuclear family side of it, but you see the spiritual family all in just a few verses of introduction to Timothy. Romans 8, when, when Jesus calls, calls us to understand, and this is my favorite chapter in the Bible, if I could be honest with you, but all throughout it, it's talking about a body, a family that is longing for redemption. I was just reading that this morning, came to my mind, and then Paul <coughs> continues to write throughout the New Testament. Even Jesus himself writes and would say these same things when Jesus talks to Mary at the resurrection. What does he say to her? Go tell my brothers that I am ascending to my God and your God. That is game changer language that Jesus used. That the fatherhood of God and this brotherhood as the forerunner of Christ changes everything. It is not that the church is like a family, it is that the church is a family. I've noticed in church life that we get really confused about this language, right? In church life that I'm familiar with, when, you, when someone says brother, it's because they have straight up forgotten your name, right? <laughs> hey, brother, good to see you, sister, you know? Or for some of us, it brings back painful memories of when you were in youth group yourself and guys, you ask out that girl and she says, you know, I just really see you more like a brother in Christ, which loosely translated means I do not find you attractive. Please do not call me anymore, right? <laughs> but this familial language, we've got to readopt this. We've got to bring this back into the context of church life if we are going to start seeing the church as the family that it is. The church is a family and it matters eternally, but the church is struggling and discipling because the, with the, our interactions with teenagers on Sundays and Wednesdays and whenever it is that you meet, again, we're using the wrong scorecard or we're using the wrong place. We cannot rely on the ways that we've done this, the superficial measurements, like I mentioned last night, where we take attendance alone rather than asking how many are doing something with it. When one generation fails to pass on that faith to the next generation, something cataclysmic happens. 
you go to Psalm 78. We're not going to turn there now, but I encourage you to go read Psalm 78, the first eight verses, maybe in your quiet time today. And this, this picture, it says, one generation will rise up and proclaim to the next generation collectively. Collectively. So when he says, here is, O Israel, not just here dads and moms, in other words, the command to pass on the faith is given to moms and dads, but it is given to moms and dads in the context of a faith community. In this case, they traveled together, they ate together, they did everything together, right? And the same should be true today. We should have a church culture where moms and dads feel a love and support from the local church to do what they cannot do on their own. But we are seeing a dropping of the baton. It is when one generation fails to hand off to the next, what happens to that gospel that we are preaching and guarding so carefully? one generation to the next, the gospel can become superficial. It can become assumed. It can become lost to us. So the question for us is how do we fix this? How do we move forward with this? Something's happening in the homes where moms and dads are seeing, you know, the, the, the spiritual nourishment, spiritual guidance is something that the church does for them. You go to a mom or dad, you go home or call someone right now and has a senior that's taking calculus and say, dad, tell me about your son's calculus class. How much are you helping him with that? He's like, well, not a whole lot, you know? Why? Because I, I pay my city county taxes and I have a teacher that's going to be helping them with that. If they struggle beyond that, chances are they're going to have a tutor, right? Only rarely do moms and dads enter into those areas that they don't feel like they understand. If you want them to learn piano, unless mom and dad learns the piano themselves or already knows the piano, what are they going to do? They're going to hire a piano teacher. So we're gonna have someone to teach them calculus, someone teach them piano. If they want to be a better athlete, throw a tighter spiral in the football field, they're gonna have a, a sports coach, an athletic coach, and someone that will train them to do so. But what does that mean for the church? So we've risen now two generations of what I call drop off dry clean parents. Drop them off dirty, pick them up clean, right? Fix this, right? It doesn't work that way. Your calling as ministers of the gospel is to equip the saints, right? Ephesians tells us that, equip the saints. Some of those saints happen to be named mom and dad. <laughs> and then if we can equip them, we are multiplying our ministry. If we can spin those webs of relationships in the church, you are multiplying your ministry and bonus points, it is sustainable beyond you. Those kids are not going to be, my, I love my, the teenagers I get to work with each week. They are not going to be, barring some cataclysmic event in their life, and mine, <laughs> they're not going to be at my Thanksgiving table 20 years from now. They're not going to be at my Christmas dinner 10 years from now. So where does that leave us? It leaves us investing in what's going to last beyond us. So two action steps, two things that I, I would say that we need to do to make a new direction in how we see family ministry moving forward. Number one, we need to reach the heart. Reach the heart. It begins with moms and dads loving Jesus. Just like going to church activities can't be enough for us, it can't be enough for mom and dad either. I will never forget, I can tell you exactly where I was sitting in a coffee shop just outside of Nashville. When I talked to a dad who was a businessman of a multi-million dollar company, and he attended church every Sunday, he raised his kids in church, but they had rebelled against him, rebelled against the Lord, and of course we know that's not a formula that can happen in even happy, healthy Christian homes. But he said, there's something that I miss, Jason. And he said something I will never forget. He said, I raised my kids in church, but I did not raise them in Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. 
It is possible, and in many cases even likely, that the parents in your congregations are seeing their checklist as being one simple thing, and that is getting them there. It is a one-way street. How's that working out for us so far over the last 50 or 60 years? The first command is to hear. The second command, if you keep reading the very next phrase in Deuteronomy 6, 4, now verse 5, second command is love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is so important that when Jesus himself was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does he do? He goes back to this. What's the most important thing in all of the writings of the laws and the prophets and the writings? This verse is what Jesus points to. Love the Lord your God. So parents and students that love the Lord their God, here's why that is important and here is why reaching the heart is so critical for us and we cannot settle for anything less than the heart. Because what we love determines what we want. What we, lo- what we love determines what we will pursue. So let me ask you this question. What do the parents in your community want? I'm not talking about your church. I'm not talking about you. I'm not looking for a Sunday school answer. And just, this is a seminar really, so just blurt them out to me. If you were just to go out on the street interviews, right, talking to parents, just random parents, saved, lost, let's let's even deal with the lost parents for a moment. Parents that don't know Jesus, but they love their kids. What do those parents want for their kids? Spit it out, what would you say? Success? Okay, good grades? Do well in sports? What was that? Happiness? Money? No debt? Someone said a nice home, right? Do better than they did, right? They want something more for their kids, right? Now, I think y'all are spot on. Now let's put that on the shelf for a second. Let's go to the Christian parents, those that confess Christ in our churches. Can we honestly say that the moms and dads in our congregations would have a different answer? In many cases, I'm afraid the answer is no. It's not that these parents over here are just hateful parents. They want good for their kids, right? I've yet to meet a parent that says, you know, I I can't wait for my kids to go through three messy divorces. Most pagan parent on the planet wants their kids to have a healthy marriage, to have a happy relationship with their kids so they can have a happy relationship with their grandkids. They want them to be stable. They want them to be happy and secure. But is that what we want first? Or do Christian parents want more? To borrow an old adage and phrase and teaching from C.S. Lewis, it's not that we want too little, or too much rather, it's that we want too little. You see how that works? It's not that those parents, take them off the shelf again, all those things you mentioned, success, money, fame, all that stuff, is not that that's wanting too much for their kids. They're wanting too little for their kids. They're settling for, as Lewis would say, mud pies, when there's a feast waiting for them. We gotta want more for our kids. We're too easily satisfied. How is it that we are going to get there? Remember, same thing we talked about yesterday and Brody talked about this morning. Our life's work is measured in faithfulness. So that is not just something true of ministry. That is something that is true in the home. Do we want more? The closing words of this Old Testament is what? Malachi. Last words. He says, there's going to come a prophet, right? The second Elijah referring to John the Baptist. And there's going to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And what is that going to look like? What is the the indicator that he gives in the final, the closing words of the Old Testament? And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and he will turn the hearts of children to their fathers. Parents to kids, kids to parents. 
Why is this an indicator? You see the same thing, New Testament, you go to the Gospel of Luke, the opening of the narrative, and you have John the Baptist, that second coming of Elijah, representation of the last great prophet, and what is he doing? He's going out and preaching, and what does he open up in Luke 1 and say? Let's turn the hearts of fathers to their children and turn the hearts of children to their fathers. When it comes to discipleship, personal relationship trumps professional skills. You heard that earlier. Now skills are good, equipping is good and necessary, but if all you have is skills with no relationship, there's no discipleship. Who better to forge that relationship than the one that God has called in these parents. I'm gonna challenge you to resource your parents in a moment, equip them, but if all we do is give them tools, we're gonna see them crash and burn because we're not truly equipping them. We must target the heart. We must have a heart's cry, a heart's cry in our own hearts that their hearts would be turned to the Lord and to one another. If any of you are still wondering why that relationship matters the most, let me give you one quick example. Imagine a teenage girl, we'll say age 13, 14, she's getting ready to leave school one day and there's a guy that she doesn't know it, uh, she maybe knows his name, had a couple classes with him or whatever, he turns around and just says, hey, you're ugly. She's like, okay. He follows her out the door. And let's say he, he gets even more hardcore as he's, she's walking out of school and he calls her the B word. And I don't mean Baptist, right? <laughs> so he just yells that at her. Is that gonna hurt her feelings? Yeah. Is that gonna bother her for an hour or a few days even maybe? Yeah. But let's, let's say it wasn't that boy. Let's say she comes home, she walks through the door after a tough day at school and her dad is sitting on the couch. And he says, you're so fat and ugly. You are a Baptist. <laughs> that girl is going to be 30, 40 years old, talking with her friends. And she's gonna be able to close her eyes and hear those words still. That relationship is so critical so God ordained that there is a natural weight that comes for good or for ill. I don't care what research you read or what source you get it from, every single research system says the number one influencer over the span of the lifetime of a teenager is mom and dad. Doesn't mean that that's a positive influence, it just means that it is the number one influence. The vast majority of cases, teenagers will replicate the faith of their parents, or worse. Seldom better, there's miraculous examples to that. I, I'm, I'm one of them, by the way, I was not raised in church. So before you think, oh, this is just one of those guys that's trying to copy and paste something he grew up with, my parents never said a prayer over me, my parents never read a, read a Bible story to me, my parents only took me to church to satisfy, satisfy my grandfather when he would bug him about it. I never heard the gospel clearly tell I was 15 years old. But I know it was critical. I know it's critical today because I see it in God's word and I want us all to see it in God's word. Many of you are struggling, I believe, in ministries because we think that what's going to turn the tide is a more, like a, a more solid program on Wednesday night, a better Wednesday night message or, or more activities or bigger worship band. And all those things can be fine and well and good, but. Listen, the, the need is so much deeper. The need is at the level of the heart because in, in your worship time with your teenagers, when you're seeing teenagers and they're in worship time on, on a Wednesday night or a Sunday and they are distracted, their, their eyes are not fixated on Jesus and worship and seeing his holiness, their, their minds and hearts are distracted. Look around and look at their moms and dads. They just hide it better, right? Isn't that one of the blessings of working with youth? You know when you've lost them? 
Moms and dads, listen, I preached I preach at my church two Sunday mornings ago, and I'm telling you, they, they can be nodding and maybe a few amens here and there, but they may be making a grocery list or making their plan for to go to the game because they know how to do that. Teenagers, is like the moment you've lost them, in most cases, like, yep, I've lost you. <laughs> Reel you back in, let's pull you back in. And so that's part of what makes it fun and interesting for us, but do you notice that's the same issue? It's the same issue. When, when your hearts are cold, when your worship is cold, when you have teenage girls running into the hallway, running into the bathrooms of your Wednesday night program because they are crying their eyes out over the trauma that they are experiencing any given week. We need to be asking ourselves, maybe the reason that we can't equip our students to really serve and do missions the way that Jesus has called them to is because they're in such an unhealthy discipleship program called the home. And maybe we need to start seeing revitalizing not just churches, but homes. Maybe we need to start investing and in reaching out to these homes to not just have happy, healthy homes. If you hear me say that, if you leave this and say, well, the goal is to have happier, healthier homes. Wrong. The goal is to have godly homes, healthy homes, for the purpose of being used by God to be sent out for the Great Commission. That's the goal. But we're so busy licking our own wounds that we can't go to battle. We're so busy licking our own wounds and trying to deal with our own hurt that we're not out there impacting the world for Jesus. So we do have to get healthy, but we've got to see the reason for that. It's the Great Commission. So we've got to address the heart. For students, it means we address the heart. It means that we reach out to the students that are rebelling and we help mom and dad with those prodigal kids, but we also reach out to those that are outwardly conforming, but inwardly have the heart of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. They check off the boxes. There's just as many of those leaving the church at age 18 as there are the, the prodigals themselves. Prodigalism starts in the heart. But if moms and dads and youth pastors are only satisfied with them showing up, they're gonna continue to darken that back door more than they do the front. We've got to want more. It's got to reach the hearts of the parents. One of the biggest issues I hear today when I talk to fellow youth leaders is what are we going to do about all these new challenges today? Like, I mean, travel ball. I saw it in your face. As soon as I said it, there's like this, oh, you know, travel ball. It's like, stop cussing, right? <laughs> travel ball. Or what about this? What about this? You know, we, we gotta go on a trip like every weekend with our family, right? With the rise of affluence in some areas, it's like we're going to the beach and the mountains, we can't decide, but we're gonna go somewhere other than church. Church attendance is dropping to where what used to be faithful uh, commitment to local church was four to six times a month, now it's twice a month. Let me ask you something. What's changed? Travel ball may have exploded the sports have always been there. The beach has been there. The mountains, they've been there. What's changed is the heart. If all we do is tackle the symptom and, and criticize the symptom, we're not getting to the heart of the issue. When you ask anyone in your church how they're doing, you're gonna hear one of two things, fine or busy. Right, y'all with me? You know that the, the word busy, there's a, the Chinese word for busy is a combination of two symbols. They have a symbolic language. So they have two symbols that come together to make the word busy, heart and killing. The heart matters. If we don't address the heart, we'll miss the whole point. We'll shoot for the wrong goal. We'll miss the right play. Because at the end of the day, for our parents, every parent in your ministry, for the things that, and ourselves too, by the way, for the things that we want to do, we make time. For the things we don't truly want to do, we make excuses. We've got to go for the heart. This begins in our homes too, by the way. Can we just be real for a moment? This begins in my home and yours. The most important Bible study I will ever lead. Those three kids that you saw back there is by their bed at night. 
the most important prayers I will ever pray. I don't care where I ever get a chance to speak or whoever I get a chance to share with, the most important prayers I will ever pray is when I'm holding their heads to me in the morning and praying a blessing over them. That's my most important calling, first and foremost. I'll tell you, if you're like, well, yeah, it sounds like you've got to figure it figured out. I was so convicted a few months ago. See, I would come home and I would be on this. <laughs> I'd be finishing up a phone call and I'll be honest with you, nine times out of 10, it was ministry related and I had a good justifiable reason while I was on the phone. But I came in and I noticed you know, my, my younger two kids in particular, I'd come in the door and I'd be on the phone trying to wrap up, I mean, in these intense ministry conversations and counseling, things like that. And my kids would, my, especially my son, my youngest one would come and run and be like, daddy, daddy, daddy. And I, here's what I started doing. And I would go lock myself in a room until I finished. And then I would wait to re-engage. Dinner table, do-do-do. I would get up, go see, because what if someone needs something right at that moment? Because I've got to be there for them. I remember saying that to myself one day, I've got to be there for them. And I turned and looked at my family sitting at the table. And I said, well, who's going to be there for them? So I made a deal. I don't care if it's 110 degrees outside. I don't care if it's 10 below. I finished up my phone conversation before I go in the door. I said both my arms are out. Small changes, big difference. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe your kids are grown. Maybe you don't have kids yet. But you, if you have a spouse, if you have kids, any, any part of that, that responsibility that God has given you called your home, will you give them your best, not your leftovers? Will you make them your first ministry, not your last? Will you give them that calling that you were given to others? Will you give that same respect to them? I'll move quickly. This is the second part. Won't be nearly as long, but it's reaching the heart. Number two, and we can, I'll be glad to talk about this an example more later, but number two, we're going to talk about equipping the home just very briefly. Number one, reach the heart. Number two, equip the home. So the first command is what? Hear, listen, and do. Second command, love. The third command is really a combination of commands, and you're going to see them now beginning in uh, Verse, well, let's read verse six. And these words that I command you, to you today shall be on your what? Heart. You shall teach them, there's the first one, teach them diligently to your children and shall talk with them. There's the second one, we have teach and talk. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, so sit and walk, and while you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand it shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word teach here comes from a Hebrew illustrative language of impressing on from one heart to the next. It's like a wedding stone, a carving. It's very similar to the language of what we have as the theme for this conference this weekend, right? Iron sharpens iron. So it's this sharpening that takes place from parent to child. But you see those commands, to teach, to talk, to walk. You see, the issue is everyone in this room knows what Romans 10 tells us, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But the problem so often in our churches today is that we assume that verse only means a sermon on Sunday morning. The hearing of the word of God is meant to be more than relegated to an hour on a Sunday or an hour on a Wednesday for a skeptical generation, by the way, can you all agree with this with me? If anyone in the world agrees with this, it'll be the people in this room. We have a generation that we're currently working with that doesn't deal with the fluff. They don't like phonies. They will see phony 10 miles away. Look at commercials, the way they've changed, by the way. From when I was a kid, <laughs> it was Be Like Mike. Drink Gatorade and you can dunk a basketball. Okay, you know? I, had a, I remember saving up when I was in fifth grade for a pair of Reebok pumps, and this is so embarrassing, but I'm telling you, you know what, y'all remember this? Because I saw on a commercial 
Not, a, it was like David Robinson at first, I think, and Michael Jordan and all those guys, Chris Mullen. But then it was like this kid. He's like, Whoa, you know, and it's like, oh, that, that couldn't possibly be a camera angle because there's no way they would lie to me. I need Reebok pumps, so I'm gonna mow yards, I'm gonna do chores, and I'm gonna get those shoes. I'm not in the NBA, folks. <laughs> I'm here with you. Those Reebok, Reebok pumps are in the trash. You don't see commercials like that today. They're suggestive. Even millennials, right? College age and beyond, when you get to even like drinking age, they're like, when I drink, I prefer this. But you may choose something different. There was a Diet Dr. Pepper commercial. It was just a guy walking down the road. He's like, here's my thing, but you do you. Really? You don't even care if I buy your product? No, they want you to buy their product and they know that they don't want to hear phony. Here's my point. When a generation grows up in a home when a Bible has to be dusted off on Sunday morning and they only hear the name of Jesus come out of their parents' mouths when it's an answer to a question on a Sunday, what's their radar doing? They're asking if it's real. So let's get practical very quickly for us today. Equipping them with resources means we're going to invest time, energy, and even money in leading them. Let me give you a quick survey question. Just do the math in your head. You don't have to write it down because this would be too difficult. But do an exercise with me very quickly. How much money does your church spend on education discipleship in the building of the church? Just guess, like let's, let's start with that building. If you have an education wing or classes that you meet in, you don't meet out in the parking lot or under a tree, right? So you built classes, so you have that. You have curriculum that you buy. You have conferences that leaders will go to to help teach teachers to better teach that curriculum. You have special guest speakers that come in and help teach those things and disciple there, and those are all great. I'm not knocking those. Those are fantastic tools for the kingdom. But if that's the spreadsheet on one side, make another column. How much money or what percentage of that budget was spent investing in discipleship in the home beyond the walls and those other 100 plus hours during the week other than that one or two or if they're really committed three hours a week? I'm not saying this doesn't matter. We need to do this, these two or three hours, we need to do it well. We need to do it right, right? We need to do it intentionally. But if all of our eggs are in this basket and we're ignoring this whole part over here of engaging parents beyond the walls of the church, I'm, just to illustrate this, I did the math one day of the number of hours that we have with teenagers versus number of hours of influence that a parent has. And if you would liken it to one lap around a track, let's go to your local high school, one lap around the track. We are running alongside that teenager on average for 12 to 15 feet. 12 to 15 feet. If all we do is invest on a Sunday or a Wednesday or popping in every once in a while, that's how much influence we have. If we invest in the home, if we equip mom and dad, even as they get older and gain independence where they're not hanging around mom and dad all the time, they're still the primary influence. You covered the track. But here's the problem. We're investing so much in 15 feet and so little in the rest of the track. So you've got to start mobilizing, and, and I, I feel your pain, believe me, because sometimes it is difficult. And I've, I've served in church contexts where you can feel like the, the boy cries wolf because no one believes you when you start talking about these things. But that's why we've got to begin praying and being a voice for this. Here's the way we need to think about this. Here's, here's the statement I want to ring in our hearts from this session. It's very simple. <clears throat> the primary discipler of youth and children in your church are to be the parents. The primary equipper of the parents is to be the local church. That's the model that not that I'm advocating, that I believe scripture abdicates. Yes, we're gonna stand in the gap. Yes, we're gonna have a spiritual family to come alongside those parents who, or those children and youth who don't have parents in the local church. We're going to do that, right? Remember Spider-Man, right? 
but we're not going to have a passion for youth ministry and then run the wrong plays. We're going to do what God has called us to do, how he has called us to do it. We're going to honor God, not just in the ends, but we're going to do as best we can to honor him in the means. So listen, and we can point a finger. Please don't go back to your churches and say, point a finger in the face of parents saying, you, (laughs) this is your job. Ha! Got a Bible verse that says that. Guilt is a lousy motivator. Parents that feel guilty for not doing enough, which by the way, they feel guilty for not doing enough in every other area of their lives if you start talking to them and get to know them. Guilt will motivate them to be a godly parent, I'm convinced on average for about 48 hours. We've got to motivate not from guilt, but from grace. From example. They don't know how. I just shared with you a little bit of the history. We're talking multiple generations that have never sat down and passed this on, so they don't know. No one ever did it for them. So very quickly, here's just hit the highlights of what he says. Here's some very tangible ways that you can start seeing this happen in homes. I'm just gonna hit the the highlights. Little moments matter, so they're gonna disciple as they go. This is what I was talking about or joking about with the Chick-fil-A drive-through, right? It's a conversation, it's taking advantage of that time. So let's break down just a few examples. Number one, talk about them when you sit. That's intentional time. That is, that's the starting point where you need to equip them. Because a mom and a dad who sits down and opens their Bible in a living room with their kids and their families, regardless of their age, they have no clue what happens next. Even if they have good intention. Because again, they didn't have a model. So what do you have to do? You have to be the model for them. You have to give them tools and resources and motivate them so that when they open the the Bible in front of their kids, they know what to do. I used to always use the term family worship and I don't use that anymore because I started figuring out that what my parents were hearing when they heard family worship was, well, where do we put the choir in the living room? And you know, the, the pulpit doesn't really fit behind my sink and all that stuff, but like, how do I have this church service? No, it's, it's not meant to be a church service. That's what the church service is for, right? You're not replicating or reproducing, you're doing something that the church can't do. We started small groups in homes recently in our church, it's been awesome. But I heard the funniest thing come out of our education pastor's mouth because we, we start kind of going back and forth. I'm like blowing the trumpet for parents and he's blowing the trumpet for small group. Everyone kind of does their thing, right? And, and he said to me, he's like, you know, gosh, it would just be so awesome if like it's so hard formulating these groups. It would be so awesome if God just kind of gave us this spreadsheet of like small groups that like did life together, right? I said, that's awesome. Let's call them families, right? <laughs> That'd be wild, wouldn't it? (laughs) Call moms and dads and kids and all that stuff. Like, oh man, we can like revolutionize the lingo. When you sit down, when you walk along the way, this is unplanned time. These are things that just come up conversationally. You, are, you do this naturally with your teenagers, right? You look for what we call teachable moments. So for a parent, if something comes on TV, it's not just something that you watch and you're like, you know, it's a teachable moment. You, you converse about it. As a dad recently told me, they drove by a car wreck and I was having a conversation about teachable moments with him. As he drove by this car wreck, he said, you know what I did? I had a 10 minute conversation with my son. He called me, he was so excited. He said, I had a 10 minute conversation with my son. We went from saying, oh, we should be praying for those people or how sad and tragic is that to son, do you know that your friends know Jesus? Because we're not promised tomorrow. The people in that wreck, I mean, it was a bad one. I said, they're, they're probably standing before the Lord right now. We're not promised another minute. Well, no, Dad. Well, son, what are you going to do about that? Maybe we should pray for your, your friends. What, what's the name of one of your friends we could pray for? And so he, his son shared the gospel with someone that week at school based on a conversation of them just driving by a car wreck. That's discipleship. That's worth about 100 Sunday school lessons in my book because that boy will never forget that. I, wanna, I want when those kids come back for... Thanksgiving and Christmas, I want them to, to, when they tell stories about what's gonna, you know, this was like when we grew up, you know, just like you do with your parents and all that stuff. I want us to tell better stories. 
Like, Dad, you remember that time that we went and served together? Mom, remember that time that we, we prayed together for these people and we saw God answer that prayer? Remember these moments where we gave up a family vacation to go serve? It's those unplanned moments. Two more, real quick. When you lie down and when you rise up, this can be very simple, but I believe it's based on prayer. It's blessing, blessing them teaching and whispering truth into their ears. Now, since we work with youth primarily in this room, let me ask you this. For you and or the parents in your church, what typically happens when a three and four-year-old is going to bed? Mom and dad get their little hands. We fold their hands, right? We say our prayers, and that's awesome. Where is that at 13 and 14? It's awesome for a three and four-year-old. But you and I both know that 13 and 14 year old needs it even more. But mom and dad, hands off. Let's put them back together. And this led them realize it doesn't have to sound like the preacher or the pastor, but because it's coming out of mom's and dad's mouths, a simple prayer in the morning of 10 words may carry them for days. As you rise and when you lay down at night, bind them, write them. These are relational reminders and symbols. If you skip down to verse 20, I'm gonna I'm gonna close with this. Skip down to verse 20. I'll come back to the idea of symbol in just a second. But verse 20, he says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, <laughs> they're seeing these sacrifices, they're hearing all these commands, they're like, Mom, Dad, what is this all about? They say, you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. This is our story of redemption, son. This is our legacy. This is our faith. For the teenagers in your youth ministry who have parents that are saved, how many of them could tell their parents' testimony? I asked that question on a Wednesday night several years ago. You know what it was for me? One-fourth. I scrapped the lesson that night. I said, we're going to take out a piece of paper. I'm going to give you questions. You're going to go home and interview your parents. Next week, we're going to come back here and share the stories. It wasn't Friday night at camp, but I'm telling you, there were a lot of tears. <laughs> because when they started sharing those stories, they realized that this is their story too. Did they know their stories? Have you given them an opportunity to share those stories? The power of symbol, the power of blessing is so important. I want to share a picture or two with you in closing. I ran across this. I didn't even know these folks, but I knew a guy who was a wedding photographer. He actually lives in Florida. And we were looking through some of his church members' pictures. He was showing me some of his work that he was doing for something else. And he showed me these wedding pictures. And my eye was immediately drawn to something. I want to see if it does the same to you, if we could put that picture up, okay? So here it is, happy husband and wife. I don't even know them, right? But it's, by the way, it's really weird to ask for wedding pictures of someone you don't know. <laughs> but I'm like, I really need this picture. And I explained to them why. So they graciously gave me two of them. So you got this picture. Wedded bliss, right? Scenery, this deck. Then this ugly red chair. Here's, here, go to the other one. There it is again. <laughs> I didn't want to be a jerk, but I was like, what's the deal with the ugly red chair? <laughs> like, is that like, is there a story there? And he said, yeah, there's a story. The guy's name is Ian. I think the girl's name is Kelly, Ian and Kelly. And he said, I'll tell you about that red chair. Ian said that from the time he was a baby, his mom held him in that chair. And she prayed prayers of blessing over him that he would trust in Jesus. When he could learn to walk, he took his first steps holding off to that chair and stepping away from it. And when he did, his parents also prayed for him that he would walk with the Lord faithfully all the days of his life took a picture and made a little thing to remember it. 
he walked down every morning for school and he saw his dad with an open Bible. Which, by the way, why would he do that? He loves Jesus. Where was he sitting? In that red chair. When Ian was convicted of his sins, came home after church on a Sunday, said, I need Jesus. His mom and dad took his hands and they knelt down on that red chair. And he prayed and gave his life to Christ. So that's more than a red chair. That's more than a symbol. That's a legacy. It's about more than red cloth. It's about a faith and a faithfulness passed from one generation to the next because what we love most is the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's not overcomplicate this. Let's not make this the impossible dream. This laid this out as the God-given calling to connect church and home to accomplish the work of God in this life for his kingdom, for his glory. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, would you give us conviction to take a step in a new direction, to multiply our ministry, but most of all to to serve and do ministry biblically by relentlessly pursuing the heart of teenagers and adults and by equipping the home, by inspiring them, by mobilizing them, by equipping them with resources. But most of all, Lord, let us live by example. We fall short, but even that even those stumbles in our own lives and our own families are not things to be hid. Lord, they are examples of grace that our parents need to hear. Lord, would you do that? Would you begin that work in our homes, carry it through our churches, and then use that ministry to reach the ends of the earth for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.